Hello and welcome to Instant Genius, the bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Thomas Ling, digital editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. Around the world, it's estimated that a staggering 415 million people today are living with diabetes, with almost half of those cases undiagnosed. In fact, it's perfectly possible for a person to have type 2 diabetes for decades without knowing it. This may sound scary, but recent research has suggested that type 2 diabetes is not only easily preventable, but also reversible. How exactly? Our guest today, Dr. Jason Fung, will explain all. Sometimes called the inventor of intermittent fasting, Jason is the author of The Diabetes Code, Prevent and Reverse Type 2 Diabetes Naturally, and The Diabetes Code Journal. So a lot of your work focuses on diabetes type 2. Is it okay if you can outline what that actually is? Yeah. So uh, just to be clear, there's two types of diabetes and uh, type one diabetes, uh, I won't be speaking about much, but it's uh, often seen in children and these people require insulin. It's really a deficiency of the uh, hormone insulin. There's too little, so you have to replace it. Um, And it's not a uh, dietary disease. It's largely uh, unknown what the cause is. Um, it's, it's an autoimmune thing, which means the body's attacking itself, but why it is, I don't know. Uh, type two diabetes is a much more common type. So this is sort of 90 to 95% of diabetes typically hits in adults, although we're seeing it younger and younger in children and is largely related to the diet and largely related to, uh, obesity and, uh, being overweight. So the disease uh, can be understood essentially as uh, a disease of too much uh, sugar. So sugar in the scientific sense means uh, not just table sugar, which is sucrose, uh, but also glucose. So when we talk about glucose, uh, blood glucose is the same as blood sugar. And glucose is a component of not just sweet foods, but a lot of carbohydrate containing foods. Um, so bread, rice, potatoes, all those carbohydrates chemically are chains of glucose. And it can be understood as a a sort of excess of glucose. So your body can store a certain amount of glucose. And when you exceed that storage, then it's going to overflow. And then then it's going to go into the blood. And then you see the high blood glucose or high blood sugar. And that makes the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. So why is that high blood sugar a bad thing? It causes all kinds of problems. Essentially, um, type 2 diabetes causes increased risk of virtually every other disease. So things like heart attacks, strokes, uh, cancers, it leads to terrible infections, it's the leading cause of uh, blindness, uh, kidney disease, nerve damage. Essentially, all that excess glucose, you can think of it as, uh, you know, if you have too much of it, it's just going to rot away all the organs. And that's why, uh, you know, unlike many diseases, it it really affects every single part of the body. Almost any organ you can think of is affected uh, by uh, type 2 diabetes, and the risk has increased. Even things like COVID, we know that being overweight and uh, having type 2 diabetes increases your risk of severe disease, for example. Doesn't sound uh, particularly pleasant then. So what exactly causes type 2 diabetes? Earlier you were saying it's a bit unsure what causes type 1. What about type 2? Type 2 is largely a dietary disease. And we know this. uh, Now, there are genetic components to it, of course. 
But we know that the incidence of type 2 diabetes has increased significantly over the last uh, 30 to 40 years. So since the 1970s, we've had an increase in obesity. And then about 10 years after that, we started to see the increase in uh, type 2 diabetes, which is, they're they're very closely related uh, diseases, of course. Um, So the cause of it is likely dietary uh, or lifestyle. So because obesity is largely a dietary lifestyle disease, the type 2 diabetes, which sort of follows along with the obesity, is as well, which is both a good and a bad thing. So on the, you know, good news is that that means that if you can fix the diet and lifestyle issues, you can actually reverse this disease. On the bad news is that's really hard to do. <laughs> so I think if a lot of people were just going to guess what causes type 2, they might just say, oh, too much sugar causes type 2 diabetes. Is that a bit too simplistic? It's a little bit too simplistic. It's, it's, it's um, y- you know, uh, sugar is certainly a huge cause of it. So sugar in, in uh, the sense of uh, table sugar or added sugars, for example, is uh, one molecule of glucose, one molecule of fructose. So uh, you can get it from too much sugar, but you can get it from uh, too much other things as well. So if you have too much uh, carbohydrates, then your glucose, uh, you're not getting any of the fructose that you see in the sucrose, but you're getting too much glucose. Um, being overweight for a number of reasons can also cause it. So, uh, if you have excessive intake of even things like, uh, fats and, um, proteins, you can also do it, although it's largely related to carbohydrates. And of course, the idea is fairly simple. If you're eating a lot of, uh, proteins and fats, those are amino acids and triglycerides, which are fats. So that's not going to be as likely to cause an increase, increase in blood glucose as compared to eating carbs, which is glucose. That is, if you're eating, you know, 2,000 calories of mostly glucose, then your blood glucose is going to go up. If you're eating 2,000 calories of mostly protein and fat, your blood glucose is less likely to go up. We see this in um, a measure called the glycemic index, which is a measure of how certain foods affect our uh, blood glucose levels. And they take a number of people, they do an average, and then they have an index. So of course, the carbohydrate-containing foods are the foods that typically raise our glucose more than others, and specifically refined carbohydrates as opposed to sort of unprocessed carbohydrates. Proteins and fats, so meats and eggs and that sort of thing, barely raise our blood glucose at all. So if you think about type 2 diabetes, which is diagnosed by seeing that increase in blood glucose, well, you can see why eating carbohydrates may be worse than eating proteins and fats, for example. I think it'd be good just before we go any further, just to explain one term that's banded around quite a bit when we talk about diabetes, uh, and that's insulin re- resistance. What exactly is insulin resistance? Insulin resistance is this term. Um, so if you think about the hormone insulin, it's uh, it has a specific job. So um, the cell uh, has, uh, you know, requires energy. So glucose is a source of energy. When you eat foods, your blood glucose rises. And what's supposed to happen is that insulin, the the hormone insulin is secreted by the pancreas, uh, which, which allows the cell to take in this glucose and burn it for energy. So we see that in this uh, syndrome of insulin resistance, that there's too much glucose in the blood. 
there's plenty of insulin around. So the cell is said to be insulin resistant because even though there's lots of insulin, it's not moving that glucose into the cell so that it can use it for energy. Um, the, the, the way to think of it is uh, that if your cell already is stuffed full of glucose, well, then it's really hard for that insulin to work to move more glucose in. Just as for, as for example, if you have a bar and it's, you know, World Cup or Super Bowl Sunday or something, and you have all these people in the bar, well, the doors might be open, but no more people can go in because the bar is already full. There's just no room. Same thing in this cell. If you've already stuffed it full of glucose, even if you open up the cell to allow glucose to go in, the glucose can't go in. And that's insulin resistance. The body then produces more insulin to try and open up sort of more gates to, for the glucose to go in in an, in an effort to sort of really force it in. Um, so that's, that's why insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia or hyper is too much, insulin is insulin, and emia is, means in the blood. So hyperinsulinemia, which is too much insulin in the blood, and this term insulin resistance sort of go hand in hand. They're considered really two of the same thing. Although the term hyperinsulinemia is a little easy to understand, easier to understand because if you think the problem is too much insulin, then the solution is let's lower the insulin. If you say that the problem is insulin resistance, then people say, well, what causes it? Then it gets you down this whole uh, thing of not understanding. But if the point is that insulin's too high, let's lower insulin. You might say, well, how do we do that? And you might think of things like, well, hey, certain foods raise insulin more than other foods. So those refined carbohydrates, for example, raise insulin significantly, whereas dietary fats, dietary proteins do so much, much less. Here's a, a potentially scary question. Um, could somebody have type 2 diabetes and not know that they have it? Oh, absolutely. So you would never feel it. And that's why it's important to check your blood work because you could go really uh, decades with type 2 diabetes uh, without ever knowing it if you never checked your blood test. So there's standard blood tests that we do and it picks up um, pre-diabetes, so not quite diabetes. Um, and we do use this three-month average of blood sugars called the A1C. And it basically, uh, there's a range that's defined for pre-diabetes, which means you're at risk of developing, and then type 2 diabetes. But you are not going to feel anything if you have uh, diabetes until it's really quite severe. And if you just have sort of uh, diabetes, you could have it for 10, 15 years doing all sorts of damage to your organs from the diabetes, from this sort of glucose rotting away your organs and really never know about it. So should like everyone be going to their doctor asking to be checked or is it just people with certain signs and symptoms? It would be uh, something that would be important to check sort of on an annual physical uh, sort of thing. So it's, it's a standard part of most people's um, blood work that they do every year. Um, and unfortunately, it's a blood test. There's no sort of non-invasive measurement. So high, high blood pressure was much the same story. You could go decades without knowing you had it and then all of a sudden have a big stroke. So they called hypertension the silent killer. Uh, type 2 diabetes is much the same uh, because you could go decades without even knowing it. And until you check your blood work, you would, uh, you would simply not feel anything different. What are the symptoms that people should be looking out for, though? 
The symptoms, when it gets very severe, are going to be, uh, uh, you, you may pass a lot of urine, so the glucose spills into the urine. So it spills into the blood when it gets very high. It spills into the urine, so you may pee a lot, and it makes you very thirsty. So, you, you know, increased urination, increased thirst um, are the classic symptoms of type 2 diabetes. It can sort of go in severity. So as you get worse and worse and worse, you can get into even a coma called hyperosmolar coma. So, uh, but that's a, a very severe sort of uh, cases, and you know the symptoms. You really should be trying to pick it up much, much before the symptoms. What would you say to people who might listen to all of that and be quite terrified that they might have diabetes but just not know? It's, it's something that uh, is legitimate and luckily easily diagnosed. So a standard blood test uh, can do it. Um, if you don't want to do that, there are other ways to check your blood glucose, although they're not as accurate. So it's not the three-month average that we use for the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, but there are, are finger prick um, things. So you, there, there's machines that you can buy and diabetics use these all the time where you prick your finger put it uh put a drop of blood onto this stick and it'll read it for you and that'll tell you what your blood glucose is and from that you can deduce whether or not you're at risk of uh, having type 2 diabetes then you can go on and measure it there's also these things called continuous glucose monitors which are quite expensive but uh they they it's a it's a little sensor that you put into your arm and it'll stay there for two weeks and give you uh, continuous readings of what your blood glucose or blood sugar uh, is, and they'll send it to your smartphone, and you can just uh, continually check them. Uh, in some places in the world, you can buy that over the counter. In some places, you require a prescription for that. How big a problem is type 2 diabetes around the world? It's actually a huge problem, So, um, and it's really affecting now everywhere in the world. It started, the worst uh, was in the United States, where we saw the worst of the uh, sort of obesity epidemic. Um, unfortunately, uh, the obesity problem is very, you know, worldwide now. So you see it in the UK, you see it in Europe, you see it in China, um, and, and along with that comes the type 2 diabetes. So type 2 diabetes is probably the single most important risk factor for uh, non-communicable diseases. That is not things, not infections, um, but things like heart disease and cancer are the two biggest killers of people overall in the world. Um, and probably the biggest modifiable risk factor is going to be uh, type 2 diabetes. So, uh, you know, if you think about heart disease and cancer, you know, there's risk factors that you, you can't modify, like your genetics. Like it puts you at higher risk, but you can't do anything about it. So there's no point really talking more about it. Uh, smoking was probably the number one risk factor for heart disease and cancer that was modifiable. And of course, decades of sort of smoking cessation programs have helped. So in many places, that's gone down. And everybody agrees with that. But now type 2 diabetes is probably the, the single most important risk factor that you can modify yourself to that. And the important thing is that it's a reversible disease. And it doesn't require drugs. It's a dietary disease. So giving drugs doesn't fix the dietary problem. Only fixing your diet can do that. I understand not all experts might agree with you on that point, saying that conventional treatments and certain medicines might play a role. Have you sort of heard any sort of pushback on, on that point? 
Um, there used to be a lot, but things have completely changed. So, uh, for example, when I started talking about reversing type 2 diabetes in 2013 or so, so almost 10 years ago, uh, lots of people said, well, you know, that's not possible. You know, uh, it's a chronic and progressive disease. In fact, all the diabetes associations said it was chronic as progressive, meaning that if you had type 2 diabetes, you would have it and there's nothing you can do about it. So, you know, go get your things in order, right? And I thought that was sort of a ridiculous statement because every, every patient, every doctor, every nurse, everybody knew at the same time that we're telling people that it's a chronic irreversible disease, that if you lost weight, hey, 90% of the time that type 2 diabetes would either get better or go away completely. That is, if you had a friend who was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, then he lost 50 or 60 pounds and that, you know, went off drugs, diabetes went away. You wouldn't say, oh, you're such a big liar. You know, it's a chronic and progressive disease. You can't do that. It's like you'd say, oh, great job, right? So therefore, it was obviously, it, it, was, it was obviously a reversible disease. And we we're just lying to people that it was this chronic and progressive disease. Why? Because we didn't have any good treatments to try and reverse it. So we, you know, as doctors, we decided that, hey, you know, if we can't reverse it, it must be irreversible. But it wasn't. We're simply not focused on the right thing. We're focused on giving all sorts of drugs when we should have been focused on the diet instead. Once people started to focus on the diet, we have studies now. So Dr. Unwin, for example, David Unwin in um, the UK, he, he, he prescribes a low-carbohydrate diet for his, his patients, and of those patients who take it, and he's published these results, of those patients who follow that diet, a full 50% of people go into a drug-free remission, which means that he's taken them off all the drugs, and their blood work results are such that they are no longer classified as type 2 diabetes. So when you think about the prevalence of this disease, which affects millions and millions and millions of people, if you can put this disease into remission for 50% of people. That's a ridiculous uh, amount of savings, not, in not, not only in terms of money, but in terms of health. And in fact, it was so obviously this, this idea that it was chronic and progressive, it was so obviously wrong that they actually had to change it. But they only changed it in 2021 in the American Diabetes Association, finally put together criteria for remission which said that, hey, this disease is a disease you can put into remission. Most other places have followed suit. But that was only two years ago that this disease was considered to be reversible. For the past 80, 90 years, we thought of this, this disease as a chronic progressive disease, not a reversible disease. So the mindset is completely different. Because if you have a chronic progressive disease, you just try and do your best. If you have a reversible disease, you should try very hard to reverse it because you're doing constant damage to your body the longer that you have this disease. So when you are talking about reversing diabetes, what does that mean biologically? Biologically, it means that you simply don't have that amount of glucose in, in your body. So remember, the, the body has too much glucose and you're basically emptying out some of this glucose through dietary measures. Um, and as you empty out this glucose, you don't suffer the damage that goes along 
with it. And it's it's a very slow progression of disease, but it's it's sort of constant. So if you think about you know um, the, the changing the oil in your car, for example, you could go you know, 10 years without changing the oil in your car, but you're constantly doing damage to the engine. If you then at that point say, okay, you get a, you know, your engine breaks down, then you say, okay, now I'm going to change the oil. Well, that's fine, but it doesn't undo any of that damage. It's the same with type two diabetes. If that high glucose load in your body is constantly doing damage and you leave it until you get a heart attack, then you say, okay, well, I'm going to do something about it now. Well, that's great but you've done a lot of damage that you simply cannot undo because, you know, the heart damage, the damage to your, your, your vasculature, your cancer risk, your infection risk, your kidneys, your nerves, your eyes, they've all sustained damage. So you have to really get to it as soon as you can. So I can't skirt around that anymore. I'm going to delve into the big question that people really want answering. Uh, what are the steps that somebody can take to prevent or reverse diabetes? Yeah, so if you think about the idea that this is just a disease of too much glucose, right? Then you say, well, what are the strategies to reduce the amount of glucose that you're putting into your body? So one strategy, for example, is a low carbohydrate diet. So again, it's very simple. We know that when you eat refined carbohydrates, so bread and um, rice and potatoes, for example, we know that those uh, foods raise your blood glucose more than other foods like salmon or eggs or vegetables, for example. So simply reduce the number of foods that raise your glucose so high, which seems pretty obvious. Um, and in fact, the American Diabetes Association just recently, again, within the last couple of years, finally said, well, this diet actually has the most scientific evidence to back it of any diet. So other diets can, can work as well. So Mediterranean diets, for example, tend to be fairly lower in carbohydrates and so on. Um, but reducing refined carbohydrates is a very good strategy um, and, again, has, has good evidence uh, of it working. You can personalize this a little bit with these new continuous glucose monitors, of course. So these monitors that, you know, you put in, you leave for two weeks, you get continuous readings. You can check your blood glucose 50, 60, 70 times a day if you want to. And what you can see is exactly the effect of the food on your blood glucose and the effect of moving, of exercise, of stress, of sleep, of all of these things. And then you can start to see, hey, if I eat this food say you eat um, a sandwich with a lot of uh, bread, white bread, and you see that your blood glucose goes up, then you can say, oh, well, let me try without it. Let me have a salad instead of the sandwich, right? And then you can start to play around and say, hey, what happens when I eat eggs? What happens when I eat salmon? And you can then personalize your diet to see exactly what foods raise your blood glucose, which is a very powerful tool because it gives you immediate feedback and to tell you that, hey, your body's not reacting so well to this specific food because you and I are different people. You and I actually react differently to different foods. The glycemic index is an average of people. So it, it averages out the effect, but it doesn't tell you specifically. So that's one tremendously powerful strategy. In fact, again, the most scientific evidence backing it. The second uh, strategy that works very well is intermittent fasting. So intermittent fasting is simply giving your body a period of time when you don't eat. And people think it's really weird, but in fact, it's actually a natural thing. So remember that your body is, should really have two sort of uh, phases. You have a phase where you're feeding, 
And when you eat, you're going to take in calories, you're going to store calories. When you don't eat or when you fast, you're going to use those calories. So if the feeding and the fasting are completely out of whack, if you're always feeding and never fasting, then you're going to continuously be storing food and not burning food. So you're storing calories, not burning calories. You're storing glucose, not burning glucose. Well, what's going to happen? Well, you're going to get too much glucose, right? It's like a one-way valve. It just keeps going in, never comes out. So that's why you're supposed to have a natural period of fasting every day. That's where the word breakfast comes from. You're supposed to fast. Then you break your fast. You don't eat all the time. And in the last 20, 30 years, we had this idea that you should eat all the time. You should eat as soon as you get up in the morning and constantly eat throughout the day and graze and graze and graze until bedtime. Well, what's going to happen? Well, when you eat, you're going to store calories. You're going to store glucose. You don't didn't give your body a chance to burn except the period of time that you're sleeping. So therefore, your, your, your feeding and fasting periods are continuously out of whack. And we're not meant to eat that way. That's why our body stores calories. I mean, if we were meant to graze, we'd be like cows, right? So the whole point is that if you simply give your body a break from eating, right? Fasting is a period of time that you're going to allow your body to burn off some of its stored energy, which is glucose. So your body has too much glucose, you give it time to burn off the glucose, and hey, you can actually reverse your type 2 diabetes. Is it fun? No, of course it's not fun. But is it good for you? Yes, it can be very good for you. In fact, you can completely reverse your type 2 diabetes. In fact, again, there was a recent trial within the last couple of years that said that using this sort of strategy, again, could reverse type 2 diabetes in about 50% of people. I mean, 50% remission rates are virtually unheard of in any of, any of clinical medicine. So when you're talking about intermittent fasting, which is obviously quite fashionable at the moment, um, what sort of timings are you talking about? Is it you, you might be recommending that people move back their breakfast till much later in the day, maybe beyond midday or around midday? Yeah, it can be any, any period of time. So there's no, um, you know, there's no rules, right? So any period of time that you're not eating. If you think about how people used to eat in the 70s, okay, um, they uh, ate breakfast say, at 8 a.m. and they ate dinner at 6 p.m., for example, and they didn't eat after uh, dinner. So from 6 p.m. till 8 a.m., that's a 14-hour period of fasting that people did every single day without even thinking about it, right? They didn't call it anything special. That's just the normal day. 14 hours. Now people think that if you go more than 10 hours, you know, uh, without eating, that's ridiculous, right? Like every 20 minutes, you're supposed to eat something, right? Some nuts or something. And it's like, that's ridiculous. That's not the way the human body is, is meant to develop. And of course, in the seventies, people are not watching their calories. They're not watching their foods, particularly yet everybody's staying relatively slender. Uh, one of the reasons might be because they're not eating all the time. So, you know, if you think that 14 hours is sort of a baseline of probably what people should do, that's not enough to make you lose weight or reverse diabetes. So you may elect to push it up to, say, 16 hours. You might elect to push it up to 24 hours. Um, or you could do more or less uh, however you feel. So there's no sort of set answer. Some people will do better with longer. Some people will do better with shorter. Um, but again, it is, it is uh, you know, some people do a 12-hour fasting period and say, oh, I'm doing fasting, but I'm not losing weight. It's like, well, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> you're not doing more than that. So therefore, you're not losing weight. 
what do you think about this new diet fad that's emerged of just the one meal per day? So obviously you're fasting for quite a long period and you're just eating that one meal. It's, it's, I think it's a perfectly legitimate strategy. And as with all dietary strategies, they don't work for everybody. They work fantastically for some people and not so well for other people. So if it works for you, great. So the, the key is that if you simply eat one meal, it's generally harder to eat sort of three meals worth of energy or calories in that one meal. So you're generally going to be eating less and you're going to be eating less often. Again, giving your body that break to lose weight. So if, if you're trying to lose weight, then it's a perfectly legitimate strategy. But again, some people find that they get very, very hungry and that's going to make it very difficult for them to stick with that strategy. Some people are going to uh, wind up overeating or they're going to feel like, for example, that, hey, now I can eat whatever I want because I'm only eating one meal a day. Well, it doesn't work that way. So you could eat easily, you know, two, 3,000 calories at a single setting if you have, say, food addiction or if you're eating a lot of refined foods. So it's, 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 it's a valid strategy. But again, you have to see what it is you're eating when you're eating because you still have to pay attention to those foods. Just simply cutting the time is 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 fine but it's it sometimes isn't enough and you have to see how you respond to it how your body responds to it because not everybody's going to do well but some people do fantastically and, and there's no reason why you can't do that people have done that throughout throughout history really so just to confirm you think it's like an okay strategy to um to delay your sort of breakfast for midday and have a big breakfast slash lunch at midday and then maybe have dinner around sort of 7 p.m that will that'll be in uh a good way to prevent diabetes? Uh, yeah, it, it would be certainly a, a start. It may or may not be enough because you have to see, again, it's, you have to, it's, it's important these days to individualize your treatment because we have that technology. So see how you're doing. You check your weight, you check your blood sugars, and if it's working well for you, then do it or maybe increase it. Uh, you know, you could go down to one meal a day. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a perfectly legit strategy. Remember that everything comes down to sort of what you're eating and also how often you're eating it or when you're eating it, right? So um, if you focus simply on what you're eating. So for years, we just talked about what sh should you eat? You know, we didn't pay attention to how often are you eating it? Are you eating this all the time, right? Are you giving your body that break it needs to use the glucose, right? Um, so both are important. It's, it's not like some people say, well, you know, you can ignore what you eat as long as you're fasting, you know, X number of hours. And that's not really true. It, both are, are very important parts of the strategy. What would you say to some people who are worried they would feel too tired, especially in the morning if they're skipping that meal? Yeah, mostly these these things are uh, habits. So if you get in the habit very quickly, your body adapts to it. This idea, there's a lot of fast, there's a lot of myths around fasting, and I cover them a lot in my uh, my book, The Complete Guide to Fasting and the Obesity Code. But essentially, if you think about fasting, it actually doesn't uh, cause a decrease in energy. All you're doing is you're switching your body from using food as your source of energy to stored food, which is body fat and blood glucose. That's how your body stores food, right? If you've eaten a lot of food, your body stores it as body fat and as, as blood glucose. When you're not eating, you're using body fat and stored glucose. So you're letting your body use that. It's not that you have less energy. Your body, if you're overweight, if you're, uh, you know, one pound of fat, 
has, you know, 3,000 uh, ish calories, 3,500, 3,800 ish calories. So most people are carrying 100,000, 200,000 calories of energy on their body. So the idea that you need to eat, you know, 1800 calories instead of 1500 calories when you have, you know, 150,000 sitting on your, in your body fat stores is ridiculous. What you need to do is allow your body to use that 150, 200,000 calories stored away, right? That's the real problem. Not that 300 or 400 that you, 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 you use on a daily basis. So, uh, yeah, the, the idea that you're tired, it, it actually doesn't, it doesn't play out because in fact, fasting increases sympathetic tone. So when you fast, your body actually naturally releases, uh, hormones that stimulate energy, gives you energy. That's why when you, you talk about the hungry wolf, that hungry wolf is extremely dangerous because it has a lot of energy. Why? Because its sympathetic nervous system has been revved up. The body essentially says, okay, you know, I'm going to increase, uh, rev up the body, but I'm going to switch fuel sources to stored energy or body fat. That's what the human body does. So it actually gives you energy. It doesn't take away energy. What are the other big strategies that someone should follow if they're looking to prevent diabetes? Uh, prevention of diabetes and treatments are, are, are much the same. So if there's too much uh, dietary glucose is the underlying problem, then you got to, you know, either put less in, right? So this is like a, a sink, for example, that's overflowing, right? You either have to sort of turn off the tap, so put less glucose in, or you have to increase the amount going out. So increase, the, you know, or like pull the plug, right? Let it drain out. So if the way that your body uses glucose is by, say, intermittent fasting because your body needs energy. So it's going to burn glucose because that's the most easily accessible energy. You could also increase exercise, for example. It's a relatively inefficient way because you have to do a lot of exercise. Um, so if you ever, if you've ever gone on the treadmill, for example, and watched that calorie counter, it moves up very, very slowly, as most people will, <laughs> who have done it will attest to. So if you eat sort of, you know, and people always say, well, you eat a, a couple of cookies and that's 150 calories, that's like 45 minutes of, you know, slow, uh, you know, quick walking or slow jog, right? So it's a relatively inefficient way to use up that glucose. But it's, it's the same thing. So if you think about that overflowing sink, it's you either turn off the tap, which is put less glucose into your body, or you increase the amount that's going out, which is increase the intermittent fasting, or increase the exercise. Both are good strategies. What you don't want to do, which is what we've done in the past, is simply you know keep mopping up the glucose and you know let it overflow and then mop it up with drugs, mop it up with drugs. That strategy just didn't work. If someone was pre-diabetic, how long would it take for these strategies to reverse that? Oh, you can reverse it very quickly. I mean, we, we, we see reversals within like a month. I mean, um, I, I wrote a paper on uh, using intermittent fasting on three of my own patients that before I knew all this uh, were being treated with, with insulin. And within a month, all three of these uh, patients, they got off all their insulin and now are considered not diabetic. So they had high doses of insulin for years and within a month, 
completely reversed with intermittent fasting. So it can be extremely quick. So you should see results immediately. In fact, if you have a continuous glucose monitor, you'll see results within days. Changing your diet will immediately impact um, your blood glucose. What do you think some of the biggest mistruths or misconceptions are about diabetes? I think the biggest one is that it's chronic and progressive. And the reason, of course, is that it's been promoted so long that not even a lot of doctors or dietitians or nurses even know that everything's changed because it's only since 2021, so only two years ago, compared to the 25, 28, 30 years that we've, you know, that they may have been in practice, you know, so I've been in practice 25 years. You know, officially for 23 of those years, it's been in a chronic and progressive disease. For the last two, it's been a reversible disease. So you see that the the, the, the messaging, um, what doctors think, how doc- dietitians think, how nurses think, has been shaped by this idea that it's chronic and progressive. So that's the biggest, uh, I called it the biggest lie of type 2 diabetes, is that it's 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 chronic and progressive. The truth is that it's reversible. The second thing, which I called the second big lie of type two diabetes is that you need drugs to do it. And in fact, it's a dietary disease. So using drugs to treat a dietary disease is like, you know, bringing a snorkel to a bicycle race. It's a useful thing, but not for the bicycle race, right? Same thing. Drugs have lots of uses. And obviously I prescribe lots of drugs, but you got to fix the diet. Now we have drugs that sort of blur the two. That is, they're drugs that suppress your appetite, therefore change the diet. So therefore, they're, they're drugs now that sort of blur that line. But if you're giving things like insulin, for example, uh, which is the classic treatment for type 2 diabetes, um, it, it simply didn't work. That was Dr. Jason Fung, author of The Diabetes Code, Prevent and Reverse Type 2 Diabetes Naturally, and The Diabetes Code Journal. Thanks for listening to this episode of Instant Genius, brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine, which you can find on sale now in supermarkets and newsagents, as well as your preferred app store. You can, of course, also find us online at sciencefocus.com. Thank you.